Power of Grayskull, welcome to the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. radio show by Fantastic Geek. We've got, like, all the grindage for your ears when it comes to Marvel Comics movies and TV shows. My name is Matt, and joining me is a righteous dude, the Sportos, the Motorheads, Geeks, Empowered Ladies, Bloods, Wastoids, Dweebies, and Jerkheads. They all adore him. It's Pete. Party on, hot dogger. I want my computer back, nerd. The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 707. The totally excellent adventures of Mac and the D. It's brought to you by Sweezy's Bar. Live music, two for one happy hour, and all the Russian interference you could ever want. Well, Pete, here we are. There are now less episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. behind us than there are ahead of us in terms of this season and uh a wild and wacky cresting point at least uh, in terms of episode count thus far yes i mean we talked last week how middle of this episode we'd be exactly halfway through and and now to know that there is less ahead than there is um behind here i mean it's a rite of passage but again certainly enjoying this season when we catch you up on what went down melinda may demands a full report from agent shaw from the beginning river's edge 1982 a remote controlled robot moves across the floor barely bringing an object to russell at feldman electronics Preppy high school classmate Chip Womack brings him a bulky computer hard drive that's been on the fritz since last night's power surge. He needs this puppy back ASAP, capiche? Russell plugs it in to check it out, and it immediately starts spitting out gobbledygook from the dot matrix printer before asking if he will help. Why? Slash n russell chooses yes by the way pete i mean the dot matrix printer boy does that bring me back uh the computer says that it's been waiting for him who are you he asks and a picture of sybil is printed out cut to the title card the return of fancy agents of shield title cards this one intentionally less fancy uh the words marvel's agents of shield in green print out all the the dos yes just so of the era. Uh, with that, we cut to Mac. Sad. Deke says that Zephyr One has jumped. Mac just needed a minute. Uh, now he's got a lot of 1982. Great line there. Uh, perhaps the mission is over and we've won, though stopping in 1982 doesn't make sense. Mac notes that no one should mess with time. The past is sacred. It's almost like Mac wants us to discuss this in our theory segment later on. Uh, Deke gets a dressing down again about killing Malik. The men bond about losing their parents at a young age, and Deke is there to talk it out to Mac. Yes, and uh, the game plan here, well, he's going to leave, Mac's going to leave Deke to figure that out as he rides off, goes to the grave of his parents, John and Lilla, and then a conspicuous house that may or may not be the house we all think it might be. We'll talk about a little bit later on. Uh, Illinois plates on the car that pulls up there and two children get out. That's Alfie 
and Ruben. Don't forget your bags with Uncle Marcus. And Mac pulls out a model of a car kit, but doesn't have the courage to walk it across the street. He rides off. We cut to Russell, who's been in the back room for a week. See how they just sneakily give us a, a sense of passing time. He finally has a voice box set up for Sybil. Uh, she's given him blueprints to rebuild her further. Back to Mac we go, who's renting uh, a room or a house, uh, perhaps a motel room, but he builds a Corvette model. Time passes. Mac's model is farther along. Uh, and of course, so is his beard. <laughs> so is his beard. That's very, very true. I mean, again, kind of this effortless way to show the time is passing. No need for, you know, cards on the screen saying six months later and that sort of thing. Uh, Deke, however, has landed on his feet. He monologues uh, until Mac throws the ball out of the door. That ends up with Deke chasing the ball. Deke locked out. Another fast forward in time. It's New Year's Eve. Mac still isn't responding. Happy 1983. More time passes still. The beard's still growing. He's frustrated with his model building. Deke stops by dropping off food. There, of course, are previous bags of food untouched. By the door, Mac is spiraling. Finally, more time goes out. He's out of beer. He sees a note from Deke, Swayze's Bar tonight. Yes, it's urgent. Meanwhile, Russell brings Sybil flowers to mark the occasion, a truly human gesture she appreciates. He thought the color matches her eyes there with the roses, and just then a robot hand clutches the flowers and uh, distinct Matt Cylon robot eye noise there from the robot. Yes, Cylon slash Kit, uh, both both ideas, of course, stemming from Glenn Larson. Uh, Pete, my notes say that Sybil is a Kit head on a janky Johnny Five body, <laughs> uh, and I mean that with nothing but love. We cut to Swayze's bar. Mac is looking for Cy the D. He says, uh, the bartender says he's about to take the stage. Up he walks. Deke, of course, as everyone cheers. My name is Deke Shaw and I wrote this song. Then he starts to sing. Don't you forget about me. Pete, we get an act break, which is a shame because it cuts off the song and we're never going to hear any more of it. Right? Right. Uh, all these illusions here, whether that is the, the Back to the Future house the Battlestar Galactica, although points off there, uh, unless we're talking Galactica 80, that's a 1970s reference there. Uh, shades of Buckaroo, Bonsai, and the Hong Kong Cavaliers here with Deke, with the boots and the headband and the eyeshadow and the eclectic, diverse makeup of the band. Uh, but as Act 2 starts here, we get May telling Deke to stop a band. You, you told me I wouldn't believe it. You want me to finish or not? She can't wait to hear the rest. And then uh, what I appreciated the most maybe about this scene, and there's a lot to appreciate, the not-quite-right lyrics of Don't You Forget About Me, previously by The Simple Minds. I love here that joking aside, we get, you know, the entirety of Deke's performance. He he continues to sing. It's glorious. It's extended. It's beautiful. Mac may be rolling his eyes, but we do not. 
with the song finally over and, and finally just in terms of the way one finishes a marathon and it was a beautiful thing uh deke hugs mac thanks for coming hey let's not pick her over whose song uh this is uh after all they're not a cover band great wordplay here pete the band is a cover <laughs> as we get introduced to roxy glass olga pachinko cricket the drummer and of course the chang twins who though the he chang says gang. what's that the chang gang the chang gang indeed um and I just love this slow introduction. I mean, A, it's kind of in 1980s TV style, but also this notion. 18, baby, straight out of the 18. It's, and it's fantastic, this band to cover, as we're going to slowly learn as the S.H.I.E.L.D. unfolds, a cover for kind of S.H.I.E.L.D. 2.0 agents or S.H.I.E.L.D. something point oh agents. Yes, Roxy Glass, of course, doing shots at the bar, covert ops and tactical, the brains of the operation. Tommy and Ronnie Chang back on that Chang gang, Matt, playing spin the bottle. Uh, Masters of Disguise, not to mention Total Honeypots. Olga Pachenko, Resistance from the Balkans, only speaks limited English, but she is fluent in the international language demolitions. And, of course, Cricket, you know, the drummer. But uh, he's he's he has a steady job. He's not as shady as we once thought, Matt. He sells Coke products. Indeed, he sells Coke, though he doesn't drink it. And, I mean, wonderful wordplay there. Perhaps vague shades of the tab joke in the first Back to the Future film. Uh, get me a tab. You need to order if I'm going to give you a tab. Um, but Mac uh, has highlighted for him by Deke all the practical applications of this, the band being a cover for S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. They move from town to town. They have technology in cases and if they're strange it's just chalked up to drugs uh with that let's go to their headquarters hey pete it's the lighthouse set thank goodness they were able to make use of it again <laughs> um there's a disco ball there's a hot tub luckily colson's okay with it they have his data his life force um and Deke has been able to use some resources to put that back all together as we're introduced to colson headroom uh, is he trapped with ones and zeros? Maybe, maybe not. His way of saying, let's stick a pin in that for further kind of exploration, perhaps next week. This week, it's all about the Mac and the D. Yes, Phil Hedgeroom there. A lot of soul searching in that digital hell. Um, but what was supposed to be a top secret military facility now with all the improvisation that Deke's done, what with Mac taking himself out of the situation, uh, they need to get down to the business of chasing Sybil, uh, the head chronicom that Coulson catches everybody up on. All right, she uses time streams to predict the future. We found evidence that she slipped into Rivers End's power supply. He's been monitoring the grid every time there's a surge, the printouts appear, and he thinks that she is building new hunters. Cut to Russell arriving from Big Ed's Ammo Emporium with some bags there. There's whirring in the back room. There's now a second robot. He's shocked. But she, Sybil, needed to expand her capabilities. Wait, I've been waiting my whole life for you. But he served his purpose, and since they've shared too much, he 
needs to go and he gets gored in our, our first 10 o'clock time slot moment of this episode. Yes, definitely the show making some use of that uh, that 10 p.m. time slot there. We get an act break after that. Colson on wheels says the last year hasn't been easy. Isolating yourself isn't healthy. You need your friends. Pete, did Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. predict 2020 in 2019? How, how did they see the time streams? Uh, so we know... Two episodes ago was done in April. Let's say this was started at some point in in May, at least as far as filming. Any any minor revision might have been made on the set. Uh, as much as a little bit more than a year ago, they were predicting things. Agents of Shield, our own Sybil, Matt. In the scene, Deke arrives with a jumpsuit on, kind of you know, more 80s version of the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. jumpsuit. He's got shades. Will you sit on in a training session? We get from director Jesse Boschko the zoom in, the push in there, which I hate because it's dated, which means I love it because it's meant to be dated <laughs> in this scene here. Uh, everyone's told, let's impress Mac. They're loading paintball guns. In goes the team. Boom, boom, boom. So far, so good. Ready for explosives. There's a stumble, then the bomb goes off, shock that Olga is using live explosives, and then Cricket just wanders out because he didn't know they were shooting a video. A strange sniffle. Things might look bad with the team, but don't give up, Mac. You haven't seen the best part. Deke has made him a shiny new shotgun axe. Pete, I don't know about you, my heart went a Twitter, even though I'm not uh, a shotgun or gun kind of person, and actually I am in the market for an axe. Uh, but Max says no. Deke talks up the need for a team. And don't talk about my team that way. They aren't sycophants and they won't give up when the going gets tough. Pete, with that, Mac walks. This is what friends do for one another. Matt, the underlying theme of the episode here, the, the realization of Deke understanding the traits he has within himself that rub others the wrong way and, and the need for greater teamwork. Meanwhile, a manhole cover is slipped open. That little robot we saw at the very beginning of the episode controlled by the remote, as well as the bigger bots, uh, cricket and Tawny, who was seen conspicuously in the audience at the show, uh, canoodling, talking about uh, one of the band's other hits. Here I go again. Uh, a uh, a nice tune. I'm not going to use the uh, sexist language that Cricket does. Um, they hear a noise. Better not be the Changs peeping again. But Tawny doesn't mind those lucky loos. They head out into the hallway here. There's a robot that playfully asks, can you please help me? I am lost. And uh, Cricket makes fun of it. Uh, My name is dumb robot. Beep, boop, beep, turd. (laughs) But it should not have made the mistake of patronizing him. A buzzsaw to the chest here. All the splatter. Uh, that Tawny and 10 o'clock will allow. We return to Mac, again walking. Glass chews him out. Deke thinks you're a great guy, the best leader a team could have. 
Batik's also been checking in on the 10-year-old Mac, it is revealed. Uh, Glass not knowing the connection between young Mac and adult Mac. Uh, but hey, what's that over there? It's a robot with a drill arm and a gun. Not again, says Mac, to end the act. Act 4 begins with Olga uh, checking out her knife there. There are Donkey Kong barrel-jumping sounds going on there, again, grounding us in the 80s. Uh, the Changs wonder if the Deke squad even needs Mac, but this is Deke at his lowest, too much of a dreamer. Perhaps they should just focus on the music, the new material but Deke didn't write those songs, not even Walk Like an Egyptian. It's also noted, too, that uh, Mac is the leader, Deke the dreamer. So Deke aware of uh, what he can and cannot bring to a, to a finalized team. With that, Tawny enters. Ah, Cricket is dead. She gets uh, rather forcefully pulled aside out of the shot. And then there's blood. There's a lot of blood. I would argue that this is the show... <laughs> leaning into the schlock horror elements, which we will certainly be discussing more in a little bit. And per Mark Kolpak, apparently all practical effects, a lot of cleanup. Yikes. Uh, With that, Olga is ready to fight the buzzsaw robot. She's faced worse. Pete, when the dust settles, I need my Deke Squad prequel, you know, comic books or something like that, because these are all super fun characters. Yes, the metallic wizard here with the saw. Uh, we cut back to one of the robots in search and destroy mode there, Mac and Roxy hiding. Uh, he says Deke is right. Should have believed that Sybil was building an army there. They've encountered before. They killed his parents. Now somebody's got to pay. That's the robots, right? Back to the headquarters room we go. Olga is about to be dead. Indeed, Pete, I must admit that as I was watching the episode, I said Olga is dead, only to happily find out later in the scene that she's uh, she's okay. I have failed you, Papa. <laughs> Again, just who are these characters? I want to know more about them. Deke says to remember the good times, but the robot is stopped by glass and a chain. Who's wielding that chain whip? It's Mac. He says he never should have left. Uh, Mac and the D have an epic handshake. Pete shades, perhaps, of the Predator handshake. I don't know. Yes, Uh, definitely. However, the head robot is still out there. Uh, Will the team have uh, have Mac? We get a montage. Mac trimming his awful beard, probably (laughs) left over from Lost and the awful beard department there. He puts on a jumpsuit, sans arms. Pete's because he's got guns. Uh, dons a black headband and gets that shotgun axe. And uh, here we are with him in full force. How about the pose in the office in front of the flag there? You left out the gloves. But uh, they don't think the Changs do that there are robots left on the floor. They have no idea where they went. But Coulson has a theory. Um, If you could just push him into the planning circle, he felt a little left out. (laughs) Indeed, he says that uh, she must no longer have the time stream tools, so why has she come to the lighthouse? Whatever it is that she needs must be on the base, uh, something to get that time stream tool technology back. Intercut with that is the robot that has found a blue light thing, it being, by implication, the thing which Sybil is looking for. 
in the rubble there. So presumably what happened before to the lighthouse in 1976. Uh, so with that, time to add a new wrinkle to the gauntlet, a score to settle with short circuit. Great battle unfolds here. Mac shooting, Roxine Olga providing support, the twins uh, back up behind the robot. Uh, and, and get it to end up on top of the bomb. Deke detonating it. That was awesome. Uh, then Sybil is there. She says that she's made an upgrade. She laser eyes Olga. Lasers to end the act. Lasers, uh, a point of controversy, Matt. I'm talking a little bit. But as Act 5 begins here, they're carrying Olga off. The Changs turn into total cowards and run away. Uh, Deke tells his rose petal of combat she will not perish that being olga of course roxy wonders what now they can throw the explosives at the sybil bot right but it's not rigged with a detonator they need deke to get its attention oh this peter pan is an attention grabbing sob uh indeed that gives mac the ability to shoot the bomb thanks mac daddy they both kind of agree that that's not a nickname they're going to use moving forward. Uh, we'll see if they use it moving forward. In the 90s or the Daddy Mac. Oof. Cut Will to... Mac become a daddy? <laughs> Pete, one never knows. Uh, cut to a robot wheel arm bringing the blue light square back. Mission accomplished. Mission over. The team is having some brewskis. The Changs are forgiven for running. Deke hugs it out with them. Colson tells Mac that Sybil must have gotten stuff out. Not quite sure how he would know that, but if nothing else, it's kind of adding tension for, for next week. Mac and the D go to Mac's boyhood home. The loss of parents never goes away completely, but things are okay. They walk towards the house. Mac is going to pretend to be a member of the band. No, it won't be drums. No, it won't be guitar. He's a sax man. Yeah, after the suggestion of harmonica, as well, of course, the big man plays the sack, but we're going to need to get him a couple lessons because it's got to be authentic. Zephyr one appears. We're never quite clear where. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that theories. Um, Simmons tells May and Yo-Yo that there are 27 days before they have to rendezvous with the Zephyr. Uh, May is handed a timer and the Quinjet leaves. Um May has Mac's location and he is okay, but Yo-Yo points out okay and alive are two different things. It's been 20 months since, and he should not have had to go through this alone, but they will be there soon. At the lighthouse, there's a reunion, hugs all around, and May sees our other agents. It's good to see Deke and Coulson, too. Uh, she... Uh, then says that Simmons gave specific orders to find Colson's hard drive, said it was their most important asset. She might even have to agree. Will they build him a new body? You'll just have to wait and see. That's cold May even for you. Ah, Pete, the show denying us some sparks between the two of them. Uh, Mac happily shows off the new S.H.I.E.L.D. agents there. The act comes to an end, but in the tag scene, that mini robot makes its way through fields, roads, stairs. I would argue, Pete, that the back and forth stair shot is an 
echo of uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and some of the dancing mm-hmm. there at the, uh, the uh, what is it, the German Day Parade? In Illinois. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Past trains it goes and jeepers after forever it stops at a man. The man is Nathaniel Malick and Sybil's on the TV. Aren't you full of tricks, lady, to end the episode? The dossier. A detailed look at our bad guys. We begin with Sybil 5 being alive. I was glad to have her back. Uh, if nothing else, it confirms what we've discussed, that she is kind of the, the season-long villain. I think, too, if if this is going to be the midpoint of the season, and indeed it's at the exact midpoint, to have this kind of, you know, uh, first half they fought her and she was uh, downed seriously and, and you know, our agents almost won but not quite and then set up for a second half. It was good to both have her and not have her as the main antagonist in this episode. With the killer robots here, Matt, uh, some controversy, but you can't argue we've built this into Mac and by extension Deke's storyline in terms of uh, all the lore of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, and clearly the intention of this episode was to go a little nuts, to lean into uh, kind of the fun of time travel, lean into some 80s aesthetic, you know, to be maybe less reverential than the fun that we were having in the 30s. Uh, in the 50s in terms of, you know, kind of really classic clothes. I think that the 80s, you know, the 80s does not feel as classic um, as as those earlier time periods for whatever reason. And for them to jump into the fun of it, you know, we're, we're, we're doing that plus killer robots too. And then finally, Nathaniel Malik, we get him in the tag scene teaming up with Sybil and handed the uh, the tool necessary to control his world's future. Uh, Going to be interesting to see how that moves forward. Next week's episode title hints at some in-between storytelling. The idea that the show is, uh, of course, using the Chronicom threat kind of as a, as a basis or as a season-long uh, source of villainy, but the fact that we are... At this point, it seems that we are squarely returning back to Malik, to Hydra of a sorts, to that that kind of bad guy, to a human villain, as opposed to, you know, alien timeless robots. I think it's it's for the embitterment of the show, even though I really, really hate Malik to the point that it's like, I'm sure the actor is a very, very nice guy, but it's just like, you know, let me put it this way, Pete. The actor is doing a great job because the character is a source of irritation even when I see him, even before I factor in whatever villainy he's up to this week. Welcome to level seven. Time to analyze and theorize. Matt, last night's power surge, you know, the one that happened last night, which takes place uh, before Zephyr One has disappeared. So what's that all about? Well, I think you have two options. One is they wanted to come up with a hand-wavy thing to say previously on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and kind of lost track of or did not care enough to worry about the fact that 
last time on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was not last night. It was, uh, what, six years previous? 1976? So that's one option. Another option is, and I think that this is an area, this is a gray area that the show has enjoyed being in this season. We don't fully understand the rules of time travel. Our agents don't fully understand the rules. The the whole, you know, they're surfing on the wave that the Chronicoms create. So if by the end of this season we don't get any sort of hard and fast rules as to why the Chronicoms went to when they did... Um, there's a whole bunch of, well, it makes sense to the alien killer robots kind of thing. Could it be that Zephyr one was tugged there because that was a point of interest in terms of Sybil was keeping together or Sybil was recollecting her consciousness, however you want to, however you want to call it, but that she came back at this point, therefore it caused a bump, a spike or whatever in the time stream that inadvertently or, or purposefully had Zephyr one arrive then, Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the reason why. And then jumping away for reasons we are not quite clear on just yet. Um, Matt, let's talk about this timeline that uh, Deke makes a real emphasis to point out. That in this timeline, he and Ruben are tighter. So this is not the sacred past that's our agents really had leading up to this. This is a alternate universe, alternate timeline. <laughs> Shades of the trolls at the edges of Star Trek saying, this is not the real timeline, the real whatever, you know. Um, but you're right. In Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., this is not the real timeline. This is not the real whatever. And it's something that we've talked about week to week, this idea that they're increasingly off course, this idea that, when it comes to the sanctity of the, you know, prime Marvel MCU timeline, the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. are the villains. They keep making it worse. They keep messing things up somehow. And we have in Mac, uh, in this episode, saying that no one should mess with time. The past is sacred. Increasingly, Pete, look, it's great that the two, uh, the, the two McKenzie brothers are closer. That's wonderful. Uh, what is the butterfly effect of that if we stick with it for a while in terms of, you know, what does it do for Mac, uh, you know, for director Mac in terms of motivation and things of that sort? I don't know. But increasingly, we are setting the table, in my mind, to go back to an earlier point in the timeline, perhaps the, the 1930 portion, to cut off this timeline so that our agents can get back to that main timeline. Unless, of course, Pete... Perhaps the biggest shock of all will be that the show lets itself be in a separate timeline and really commits to MCU is film and the TV stuff is parallel but but different, which would be the ultimate meta comment, but also a defeat for Marvel TV head Jeff Loeb. Perished the thought. Speaking of time, Matt, uh, who does not watch the promos for next week's episode... But uh, it is a uh, May yo-yo episode, a a Mayo episode in the offing there. Uh, As they leave Zephyr 1, the 27-day timeline established, and then the discussion of 20 months that's taken place for Mac in 1982 into 1983. So I think we're going to see, I I think that was a... uh, a, a false 
uh, front there that they weren't just leaving and then we caught up with them that there was a whole adventure that happened in between. I suspect that maybe the impetus for that is probably the the recognition that this is a production for season six and seven. Yes, they had off a chunk of time uh, right around the holidays, but it's a production that basically was going, you know, for that was scheduled to go for 11 months straight and to to build in story-wise to build in an episode where most of your actors or all of your actors, you know, depending on who it is, but a big chunk of your actors get the you know, get an episode off and then it sounds like if we're going to do a May yo-yo thing that probably Mac and Deke don't appear in it too much. So you kind of let everybody have a bit of a rest at least on the acting end. Um and just, you know, have a slightly smaller, more compact production for two weeks, that that might be an opportunity to to catch your breath ahead of the final five episodes, you know, after next week's episode, the final five episodes, the final month of the show, and to just really end on a high note. Matt insists that is the Back to the Future house. Pete does not. Well, let me add some asterisks to it. The McFly house in Back to the Future, uh, quick search online reveals that it is at uh, 9300 Roslindale Avenue in Los Angeles. That's in the Van Nuys neighborhood west of Burbank. Uh, and as seen in Back to the Future, they're still, uh, to this day, as of when the Google Maps shot was taken, which this says January 2015, uh, the... the <laughs> quite obtrusive uh, uh, power towers, the, the things holding yeah. up really high power lines are still in the background there. So I will, I will admit to, how about this? At the, if they turned it into a special effects shot and erased the towers, which are iconic nonetheless, from Back to the Future, to me that seems like a lot of work to make it look less like the thing that you're probably referring to. That there said- There are still significant differences to the structure. It's definitely not the same house unless it's been rebuilt since that time. There are uh, differences in terms of the uh, roofing, in terms of how the garage structure meets the rest of the house. Then, Pete, I'm willing to offer an alternative here, maybe in the search for the mcfly house maybe for whatever reason uh, the, the people weren't into it or, or you know permitting in that particular street you know whatever it might be maybe they found a house in that neighborhood that's similar that would explain the lack of the the, the, the towers and just as i look around here on on google earth i mean most of these houses uh especially on that side of the street most of these houses have that l shape to it with the garage that's a little bit farther out and whatnot so you know, again, barring something more official, I'm going to go with the theory that they found a house in that neighborhood. Again, something that's in Los Angeles, something that's easy to get to, something that's within the 10 mile zone, the TMZ. So it's not going to be extra expensive to say, all right, everyone, drive yourself there. Call time is 7 a.m. for makeup and breakfast and whatever. You know, you could get there easily and fairly inexpensively. And I'm going to go with same neighborhood. We're going to get a little bit of chocolate in our peanut butter here, Matt, in that we don't normally go to the Facebook in the theories segment, but you have something to read for us from Facebook. Yes, and this is something that many connected 
listeners will already know about. And here we are to talk about it. So Facebook post from Jim Wynorski, uh, who has directed things in Hollywood. Uh, and Pete, you want me to go word for word here? Yeah, you want... read okay. it, baby. So here's what he had to say. This was uh, posted, I believe, on, on uh, either Friday. Yeah, probably Friday. So yesterday as we record this. Here's my now open letter to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. producer Chris Cheremy, still unanswered. Chris Cheremy, as the co-writer, director, and part owner of the cult film Chopping Mall, that's Chopping with a C-H, I was rather taken aback by last night's episode of your ABC TV series, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, the many comparisons between my film and your episode were more than obvious. In mine, a group of young people find themselves trapped in a mall with three deadly laser-shooting robots. In yours, a group of young people find themselves trapped in an underground labyrinth with three deadly laser-shooting robots. Uh, immediately, Pete, I don't know that they were all shooting <laughs> lasers. But, I, but let's continue with, with the, the respected director's words here. My robots shoot intense pink laser rays. Yours do the same. My robots are approximately five feet tall and roll along via wheels slash treads. Yours do the same. My robots have a distinctive headgear designed by Oscar-winning special EFX man Robert Short. Your robots have a distinct, distinctive headgear modeled directly, and I mean directly, from the robots in Chopping Mall. What I'm saying here is this. If you wanted to do a riff on Chopping Mall, why not at least inform me? Perhaps even let me direct the episode. As a fan of Marvel comics and movies, I want your company to succeed, but not when the people in charge attempt to entertain by overtly plagiarizing other people's creative hard work. So before I start taking further action, I thought I'd give you the chance to explain yourself. I'm sure you're a busy man. Uh, I'm sure a busy man like yourself doesn't have time to oversee the day-to-day -day workings of story editors and production crews. But in the end, the people under your command did the wrong thing. I have to hear back uh, from you at your convenience. Pete, that from Jim Wynorski. Your thoughts? Now, I became aware of this early Friday and saw some chatter that, oh, he's he's doing this sarcastically, that the reactions seem to be that he's in on this. Um, not the most prominent producer that he names. You would think that if he really meant business, right, Matt, that he'd go after head of Marvel television, Jeff Loeb, or I don't even know, even the showrunners in uh, Marissa Tancheron and uh, Jed Whedon, but instead goes after Cheremy here, which smacks of a little bit of inside baseball. Um, but looking at his Facebook page, which, which is public, and going through the comments here, to which at this point on uh, Saturday afternoon, uh, July 11th, there are 91 comments and 15 shares. Um, this is still not uh, been responded to, which he said uh, he doubts there'll be any response. Uh, what's Jeremy going to say anyway? Um, and a little further down, uh, he is saying that uh, he, he intends to uh, speak with a lawyer and uh, with the intention to sue. So a couple of thoughts right off the bat. First of all, as you said, Pete, 
look, I'll be honest. I had to look up the name Chris Jeremy. Uh, he has the credit uh, for for the, like the last seventy episodes of Shield. He has the credit of producer. Now, for those who don't know, producer is higher than co-producer, but lower than co-executive producer, which is still lower than executive producer. So, you know, this is kind of akin to I don't know. Take your pick. Going to Bed Bath and Beyond and talking to the, you know, the 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 bathwares assistant manager asking why does the company uh invest the way it does like you know this isn't necessarily the person to be asking um on top of that some references to your company i mean listeners will know that marvel television at the time this was made marvel television was a division of marvel as a whole which did include comics but did not include the films um since that time they're now all under one roof but this was not this is not the same marvel that makes the marvel movies as most people know Uh, then add to it pete you know we can get into in a moment the definition of plagiarism versus parody i know that jim winorski knows what parody is and pete if there are young ones listening here i'm going to read some legit titles of parody movies that jim winorski has made if you have little ones around, you might want to fast forward maybe 60 seconds. Here are some of the parody films that Jim Minorsky has directed. Uh, the Bear Wench Project, Busty <laughs> Cops, The Witches of Breastwick, Alabama Jones, and The Busty Crusade. Wait, wait, wait. Crusade. You forgot The Witches of Breastwick too, Matt. Uh, that's true. It's not It's not under the parody list at the moment because the guy's directed a lot. So we'll, we'll circle back to there that too. There was no Witches of Eastwick too, so I guess <laughs> that one's not parody. <laughs> the Da Vinci Coed. The Breastford Wives, House on Hooter Hill. I'm de- the devil, detecting a theme. The Devil Wears Nada, Cleavagefeld, Para Knocker's Activity, and The Hills Have Thighs. These are all legitimate things that he has directed. I'll now just I'll let my eyes scan over his lengthy filmography, and I'll add just five more things that my eyes go to: uh, Loose Screws, Sorority House Massacre Two, Gargoyle Wings of Darkness um bone eater and last but not least dino croc versus super gator when was the last uh credit the last credit according to wikipedia is cobra gator that's one word capital c capital g uh which is an unreleased film that he made for the sci-fi channel um plot an insane genetic engineer splices the dna of a king cobra and an alligator um so a couple of thoughts, Pete. Let me start with one, then you can take the ball from there. I know that this is this episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has a little bit more gore. I, I would personally call it kind of schlock gore, but fine. It's a little bit more gory than the, the show has ordinarily been in. Um, the show is also this season, you know, it, it's, it's lining up um, some longtime S.H.I.E.L.D. directors for one last, one last go-round here. Uh, we, of course, have an Elizabeth Henstridge episode coming so it's kind of her opportunity to direct but my point is hey this is during this season you're gonna have the last kevin tantrone episode you're gonna have the last um um jesse botchko episode maybe jed whedon gets in there you know etc etc a is this the time to bring in somebody who's brand new okay maybe yes maybe no b does it benefit the show to have the director of curse of the komodo and and you know the guy who had the quote um uh, that he got into film quote for the money and the chicks and who said of 
portions of the female anatomy, which I, I already said the word once or twice. I won't say it again, but he said of that part, uh, they are, quote, the cheapest special effect in the business. Is this the guy that you want directing even this kind of, you know, silly episode of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I would argue not. We keep it in the family and this production keeps it in the family. Um, you know, robots, the horror tropes. This has gone on with Mac for seasons. This is not an out of the blue type of thing. Uh, not going to deny the the similarities between the robots, but this done as homage and parody, I would argue. Uh, Winorski uh, makes several comments to his post responding to people. There are people that say you don't know the context of the episode, uh, that these references were made with respect. And he said big difference between homage and ripoff. This was the latter. And uh, at one point... A, a comment made Friday. He said that he's giving them 48 hours to respond. Uh, and if not, then he will be taking that legal action. Among other things, you know, none of these people who made shield last season are currently working on shield. Now that's not to say that they're even if you mentally erase the coronavirus for a moment, could there be uh, publicity, uh, you know, contractual publicity obligations that that some of these people have? Sure, but it's going to be your top executive producers. Maybe it's going to be, uh, you know, your actors more likely. These are all people who wrapped this job in, you know, certainly if you're involved with the the live action portion, which is to say not editing, not visual effects, not music. These are people who this job wrapped up close to a year ago at this point. I think it was the second or third week in August. So. Chris Jeremy and everybody else, irrespective of coronavirus, are all sitting at home or working on other things right now. We're taking a well-earned rest after burning the midnight oil. None of these people are going to respond. And further, furthermore, if this guy was in the right, which, you know, Pete, we can get into plagiarism versus parody here. But even if he's in the right, this guy versus the, 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 law, the, the legal department of the Walt Disney Company good luck i'm gonna say that this is all a tempest in a teapot and will blow over and like you said if if not i'm guessing the mouse house can bury this guy in in paper and delays and uh as we get ready for falcon and the winter soldier season two sometime in 2022 i will imagine this will have all gone away transmissions Let's check the wire. Pete, we head to Twitter for our Twitter poll. One sad Russell got 3.9%. Two stranded pals got 3.9%. Three robo drones got 11.8%. And four, the Deke squad got 80.4%. So certainly uh, some pretty solid marks there. Uh, some Twitter replies as well. First one from Andre Yeager. That's at Dr. Poll in 1983. I went to high school in the 80s. This one took me all the way down memory lane. Deke's band was definitely Buckaroo Banzai. I know I say this every week, but it keeps getting better and better. Uh, three tweets from JT Atkins. It's at JTA is me. Lots of credit to the writers, producers for mapping out an episode with lots of comic relief. I imagine we needed the break before the roller coaster ride to the finale. 
Also, I love that Colson's monitor was precisely our edit suite client monitor in the 90s. <laughs> My only disappointment, no War Games references. And furthermore, what a nice touch that this more comedic episode also highlights the determination and unrelenting kindness of Deke, a true friend whose oddball plans really save the day and whose compassion brings support to young Mac and healing to the current map. Uh, Mac, Pete, that from J.T. Atkins. I think that he... He does a great job at summarizing the positives that Deke brings to the table. The character does get a lot of criticism, and I think much of it rightly so. The sexism, okay, uh, the the charges that are made in this episode by another character of unoriginality, Matt. Wow, it's it's art imitating life, possibly imitating art, still to be determined, uh, but. Yeah, there, there's there is sweetness underneath as well. The the character is is complex. Uh, a couple more tweets here. First one from Stuff Happens. That's at K C L Y L E one. These time period episodes are genius. Turning AOS into an '80s slasher flick. Who to funk? Phil Headroom. Classic '80s. The show was having fun in its last season. A tweet from Brian S. That's Brian O-E-N-O on Twitter. I'm a child of the 80s, but not crazy nostalgic for it. That was probably the silliest episode of the series, but it certainly had its charms. And in the end, it won me over. Not a favorite of mine, but a solid three robo-drones. A tweet from David Siller. That's Siller David Poet. It was like totally tubular. Like Michael Jackson bad, you dig? Great trip down nostalgia lane. And lastly, from Rob Wolford, that's Robert P. Wolford, this episode deserves a five. To Facebook, Matt, where Greg Gear writes in, did you happen to see this? And it's a link to Jim Wynorski's uh, post. Uh, I took it as an obvious homage, as all as were all the references in this entire episode. I am eager to hear your thoughts. I told him I did, uh, that it remains to be seen uh, you know, whether he was miffed or it was some sort of knowing act. Greg goes on to say, it seemed like a, a pretty strong response. I pretty much thought he would recognize it for what it was, which I was surprised by that reaction. Um, I said we were going to cover it in the podcast today, and he said he was hoping we would. Smiley emoji. And to the email inbox, uh, the email from 084 as follows. This episode was completely ridiculous. From the bad fake beard to the bad cover band to the bad 80s versions of Chronicoms. And I loved every second of it. Insert air guitar here. There was a totally surprising mix of comedy and drama, almost Taika Waititi-esque. I can't be the only one getting choked up at that scene with Mac and Deke in front of Uncle Marcus's house. Not to mention Mac getting his bro Thor on in the first part of the episode. Very hard to believe this was written and shot before Endgame. And Coulson dealing relatively well with being trapped in 80s tech was the chef's kiss to the whole thing. Some things I'm trying hard to not think about too much. Where is the actual shield? Head cannons. Either Insight's failure bankrupted slash exposed them and they're disbanded like what happened in the future, or Deke just wasn't able to reach out to them without being laughed at. Maybe Stoner has gotten a Winter Soldier visit by now. Why the quick pit stop in 1982? 
headcanon. Fitz is controlling the Zephyr's time jumps based on any Chronicom activity in time, and all of the waves being made are tripping him up a little. He sent the team to 1982 when Sybil was turned on by the computer repair guy. Then he realized she wouldn't be functioning for another 20 months, and he sent them to 1983. Side note, Pete, I kind of like that as, a, mm-hmm. as an answer thus far. What was the point of Cricket? Headcanon. In a timeline without Chronicoms, Cricket eventually becomes Rusty, a.k.a. the best helicopter pilot that Lance Hunter's money can buy. <laughs> uh, those couple of questions aside, this was definitely the most fun episode of the season. I'm sure all this silliness is there to compensate for what's sure to be a dark and plot-heavy back half. Can't wait. Until next time, Pete. That, as always, from 084. 084 with some great insights as usual. Pete also having great insight, lowercase i, is everyone who supports us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek, making sure that wherever we go in the time stream, in the time branches, multi-branches, etc., hopefully there will be a fantastic geek there. Everybody who contributes to patreon.com slash fantastic geek with a ph uh, gets access to exclusive content, all sorts of levels. And if you're unable for whatever reason, we recognize the ongoing pandemic to contribute. Can't do that. Going over to Apple podcast and leaving us a review this in the final season of agents of shield, even as valuable. All that support appreciated, all that communication also appreciated. Pete, how can people be in touch with you to talk Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 11,344 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do me a touch of the podcast, comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more! Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, again, with the PH, all one word, like it today. Well, Pete, for people listening in the future, our next episode comes right after this one, but for those listening in the present, it'll be next Saturday, as we follow the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to another time, another place. For now, though, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Nobody told me we were shooting a video. (laughs) 